Let's continue as we're looking at this kind of review and overview of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans beginning this morning in chapter 9 verses 1 through 13 and we'll call this part 1 anguish and purpose but what we're doing here is we intend to go back through and to, to, to put back together the big picture of Paul's letter to the Romans and Paul says that the nature of the gospel is such that he is not ashamed but that instead he is eagerly obliged to it. A gospel that is nothing less than the very power of God unto salvation. The wrath of God revealed against men, the righteousness of God revealed in making propitiation for them, ransoming back His people. Got to spend some time this week in Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10, and every time I do, blood bought sacrifice not some kind of airy fairy spiritualism but the very blood of Christ propitiating buying his people our lifeblood purchased with the lifeblood of Christ so that the one who has been eternally just may also simultaneously be the justifier. In Abraham, of which we sing, we see the grace of God manifest when he did something as simple as believing God, and yet it was reckoned to him as something much more profound. It was reckoned to him as the very righteousness of God very power of God on display for faith in of itself is powerless instead the power lies in the one in whom we have faith when he is faithful to do all that he has promised for those that have faith in him and having been justified through the gift of faith we are those that rejoice And I mean, man, we rejoice. And if we don't, if we don't, we're out of line. We rejoice, literally boast in the very hope of God. For while we were dead, born in the image of our father Adam from dust and to dust, in Christ we live because in Christ we died. We know what our identity is. And guys, when we get here into chapter 8 and 9, At this point in time, you've got, if I may digress from the notes for just a moment, at this point in time, you have to know your identity. You have to understand, by the time you get to chapter 8 and 9, you have to understand the realities of the children of God that are recorded in the first seven and a half chapters of Romans. Or you have no basis to believe the promises that are made going forward. You have to know it. You have to know your identity. You have to understand what it means to have Jesus Christ himself shepherd your soul into the grave that he may shepherd it out and you may be raised with him. Paul says you want to define what it means to be a Christian? Man, what it means to be a Christian doesn't just mean to believe certain bullet points 
Oh man, belief is <laughs> hugely part of that deal. But that's not what defines what it means to be one of the children of God. What it means to be a child of God, Paul says, is to be baptized in the Spirit. To die with Christ. To be buried with Christ. To be risen with Christ by the glory of the Father that you may walk in the newness of life. You say, man... That's kind of a complicated definition. Friends, life is a complicated reality. Life's so complicated that the biologists don't even know how to define it. And we're just talking about physical life. They just know how to describe it. That's okay. Sometimes I think as Christians we fear the complicated. And in fearing it, We try to dumb it down and unfortunately make it less than it is. But the Lord had given us His Word exactly as it is, simultaneously as straightforward and complex as it is. And if He has given us His Word in such a manner, He has equipped His people in the newness of the regeneration of both their heart and mind. A heart that was once stone a heart of flesh, a mind that was once darkened, the mind of Christ, that we may understand these very things, that we may actually walk, having been buried, raised, to actually walk in the newness of life. It's a profound identity. Life from death. The calling into existence of that which did not exist. For by the Spirit we were buried with Him in death that we may be raised with Him in life. The reality is is that men, all men, all men, are enslaved not apart from themselves, but to themselves. They're enslaved to their own being. Either, though speaking of, In Romans chapter 8, verse 8, where it says those who are in the flesh cannot please God, or of those in the very next breath that Paul speaks of in verse 9, where he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if it does, you are set as a son. You are set as a daughter the very adopted children of God, an adoption that comes with a promise guaranteeing your inheritance, the fullness of which that is yet to be revealed. The very Spirit of the Son of God Himself as the earnest money, the down payment on what God has done to purchase you and to purchase me. The down payment that results in absolute assurance. Man, the kind that just makes you just... It's the kind that makes you wear well. God will not forfeit what He has already paid. Putting in you the Spirit of His Son required the sacrifice of His Son on your behalf for His glory. He will not waste that sacrifice. He will make good on it. We have an inheritance sealed by the Spirit 
so that we can even say that when we don't know how we ought to pray, the Spirit Himself is interceding for us, and therefore Paul can make the most outrageous statement in all of Scripture that for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, all things work for good. All things. Doesn't mean all things are good. Certainly doesn't mean all things or even most things are easy. As a matter of fact, what you'll find is the things that are working for the best good are often the most difficult. All things work for good. For those who love God because they are called according to his purpose, an effectual call that brings about the heart of the new creation. And so here's what you ask yourself. Are you called? Well, how do I know? Do you love God? Do you really love God? Not the concept of who God might be, but as he presents himself in his word. Do you love God? Not the things that God might give you. Not that you shouldn't love those things too, because you should. But do you love him? If you do, you raise your chin up because you've never had a bad day. Not once. Not a bad day, not a bad week, not a bad afternoon, not a bad hour, not a bad moment. I know you've been through some hard, hard stuff. You say, man, I don't know if I can believe that or not. Friend, that's the promise of the gospel in which we believe. This is the hope of God in which Paul says we rejoice, yes, even we boast. We boast. Man, if, if, if you can't boast in this just a, a little bit, I'm not talking about human arrogance, but if you can't say, by golly, in Christ Jesus, friends, I've never had a bad day, that is the boasting that accompanies the gospel that Paul speaks of. Man, it's good. And it's hard. As a matter of fact, what we will find is that the gospel that says, pick up your cross and follow me, in making all things good, produces a more profound anguish that must be walked in in this life than those who don't know the gospel will ever understand until the next. That's the thing about the heart of Christ. It's his heart on both sides. And so in Romans chapter 9, in verse 1 through 5, Paul continues, and he says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. First of all, I'll, let me just as a matter of commentary say this. 
that is already self-evident, right? By the time we've got to this point, if you're still reading the book of Romans, like at this point in time, you're, you're either reading it because you know in the depth of your being by the very Spirit of God that bears witness to your spirit that Paul is the apostle of God and is speaking the ordained word of God, or you're reading it for curiosity value because you think he's absolutely nuts. I mean, those are your two options by the time you get to chapter 9. And so, for the apostle to come out and say, hey, listen, I want to remind you something, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, speaks to the weight of what he is about to say next. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish... Now remember, this is a guy that's never had a bad day in his life. All things are working for his good. And yet, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul is in profound anguish over the predominant lostness of his brothers in the flesh. Paul was a Pharisee, not one anymore, is an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a people that have very, very, very particular promises from God. Many of which are outlined here. And yet, predominantly, for the majority of them, at this moment in time, those promises are not being realized. And it literally brings Paul to his knees. Oh, make no doubt about it. There is a day coming when indeed all Israel will be saved. He says it himself just a couple of chapters away in chapter 11 in verse 25 through 27 when the apostle writes and says, lest you be wise in your own sight, and quite frankly, in light of what he just said, lest you despair, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The reality is, is there is a day coming when all of the remaining living blood-born sons and daughters of Jacob will be born again. You can drive the stake. Not because I said so, but because the Holy Spirit said so. 
with all the implications that come with it, and they are profound. And quite frankly, will shake the eschatology of the modern church right down to its sandy foundations. There's a day coming when all of the breathing children of Jacob will be born again. But that day's not today. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Paul knows that to be true in a way that is undoubtedly more profound than you or I can ever know it to be true. Because you and I can read it and we can be enlightened by the Holy Spirit to the fact that that is the truth of God. But Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit that it is the truth of God. Paul knows it to the core of his being. That there is a day coming when all Israel will be saved, but that day is not this day. The day that this letter is penned is not that day. And his brothers, by blood and in the flesh that he knows well and personally, and look, you can't put Paul in a vacuum here. Was the guy out of line? Of course he was out of line. He says he was the least of all the apostles, one untimely born because he persecuted the very church of God. And he plotted on that with all sorts of dudes. But you can't act like that came in a narrative. Those people were his brothers. They were his friends. Especially for those of you that were saved later in life. Do you have close relationships with people that are not born again that you were close with before you were born again? Paul says he's in anguish over them. Oh, he knows it's true, but it's not just some spiritual fact, some doctrinal piece of information to him. That, hey, listen, it's not today, but one of these days, all those Jews are going to be saved, so y'all don't worry about Israel. That's not how Paul feels about it. He is in anguish over his lost brothers and sisters of Israel you look at what he has to say about the intensity of Paul's heart he says I'm speaking the truth in Christ I'm not lying my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. (laughs) 
we use the ESV here as the pulpit Bible and our standard study Bible because I think it's a very good translation. Um, I also understand that it's exactly that, that it's not the inerrant Word of God. It's a translation and it has some mistakes in it. Some of them are more grievous than others. This is perhaps one of the most grievous. You know, I, I could wish... You know, I, I hurt so bad that, that I, could, I could almost find myself in a position where I wish that it was me instead of them. That's a pretty noble heart, right? <laughs> like, like, like when, I, when I think about what it would be like, and we're, and we're not talking about cheap sympathy here, we're talking about actual empathy. When, when I think about the position that that would place me in, if I was them, I could wish that it was me instead of them. Of course, the problem is, if that's the case, then the very thing that would cause you to wish something different from them would put you in the position that they were in, and that just gets real circular real quick, and you certainly have a logical fallacy going on. But I could. I mean, you understand what I'm trying to say. Like, my heart really breaks for them, you know. Theoretically, I could put myself in that. I could do that. I could wish for that. That is not at all what Paul means. It's not at all what Paul said. Uchomai means wish is too shallow even in, in the vocabulary. It means to pray, to desire, Six of the seven times in the New Testament it's rendered as pray. Paul says, I pray that it would be me. Not that it could be me. He doesn't say I could wish. He doesn't say I could pray. The the not only the, the concept, but the, the word itself for could is not present in what Paul wrote to the Romans. It's just not there. The idea of it being a possibility that he might feel this way does not exist in what Paul has to say. Instead, Paul literally says, I pray, I desire, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. And if you want to get really greeky with it, euchomai is in the indicative mood, which means it's being presented by the writer, which is Paul himself, as not being possible, but as being actually real. Paul actually wishes that he himself were accursed for the sake of his brothers, that they might be saved. The heart of Jesus Christ in evangelism is not simply, if you're really going to have the heart that Christ had, And listen, I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching to you. 
If you're going to have the Christ, the heart that Christ had, it is not sufficient to say, hey, look what I've got. I wish you could have it too. It is, I will sacrifice myself that you may live. It is pick up your cross. It is if it came down to me and you and it was my decision. And hey, here's the deal. Praise God it's not. Amen? (laughs) Praise God salvation belongs to the Lord and not to Paul. Because if it had belonged to Paul, he would have given his away on someone else's behalf. And then where would we be? It belongs to him. Not to Paul, not to disciples, not to apostles, not to saints, not to me and you. It belongs to him. And we're going to see that really clear next week. When he just says, look boys, it's my purpose that stands, not yours. But the heart of Jesus Christ says, if it comes down to me and you, I will be forsaken that you may be adopted. I will die that you may live. Today's homework in the third and fourth grade class was sayings of Jesus from the cross. Right off the bat. We even got it in the Aramaic. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just go with a heart that said, I want you to have the relationship with my father that I have. That would have been plenty noble. But he went to the cross and said, I will be forsaken and cut off that you may have on my behalf. Paul is demonstrating the heart of Christ. He doesn't say, I could wish this. He says, I do wish it. The heart of evangelism is one that says, I will be destroyed for you. And the reality is, is when you look at the finest missionaries across the course of the kingdom, all of the ones that get brought up as examples when we're doing all these missionary emphasis stuff, they are exactly those kind of people. They're not the kind that says, I just want you to have what I have. I want you to have what I have so bad that if, that if I could somehow give you mine, even though I would be forsaken because of it, I would do it. I got to tell you, that's offensive to my flesh. That's offensive to my flesh. By golly, I want my reward. Isn't that the whole point? Let's come and boast in what God has done for us. This is the profound nature of the gospel in the heart of Jesus Christ that in the same breath this man can say, 
that all things work for the good of those who love God and call and are called according to his purpose. And because that's true of me, I have an anguish in my heart that would cause me to forsake myself if it would save my brothers. You say, well, man, that, that is self-destructive. Yes, it is self-destructive. Yes. It is pick up your cross and follow me. The, 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 the apostles thought it was self-destructive. I mean, you read in the Gospel of John and Jesus is telling them over and over, he's like, I'm going, listen, the Son of Man must be raised up. He will be crucified. He will be handed over to the Jews and to the Romans. He must die and be raised again on the third day. And Peter looked at him and just shook his head and said, Heaven forbid, far be it from you, Lord. This doesn't make any sense. This is ridiculous. And Jesus is going, no, it's not. Nope, it's not. It is self-sacrifice for the glory of the Father that you may walk in the newness of life. Paul understood it. Which is why he wrote in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Paul, minute, man, when you read Philippians chapter 3 by itself, the first thing you think to yourself is, well, you've got to qualify this statement, right? So I count everything as loss, you know, except for my own salvation. But man, what Paul writes to the Romans would say that the surpassing worth of knowing Christ has done something in him that would even cause him to set that aside if. Whatever I gained, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Like I said, it's a good thing salvation belongs to the Lord. Because the fact of the matter is, is if the gospel is going to be proclaimed in the manner and with the heart that Christ Jesus proclaimed it, there is a certain amount of ridiculousness that must go along with that. A very particular, self-sacrificing ridiculousness. The kind that would cause angels to long to look.
In Matthew chapter 28, in verse 16 through 20, Jesus says, or it says that the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How is it that you can have an effectual evangelism that would truly desire your own destruction in order to see your fellow brothers and sisters saved? How is that doable? How is that sustainable? The only answer is that if the giver of life, the one who did forfeit himself so that you might be the adopted children of God, by whom, by the Spirit, you cry, Abba, Father. It only works if that very one, in the power of his resurrection, goes with you. He says, go and do this. Make disciples of all nations. Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has not been given to us. It's been given to him. It's funny, just up the page and Verse 1 through 10, Jesus had told these very disciples that if you will go to where I tell you to go, I'll meet you there. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, not one or the other, but both, with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And he came up and took hold, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers, Go to Galilee. Why? There you will see me. Behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. The only way 
that the heart of the evangelist can be, I wish, I pray, I desire that I might be forsaken and they might be saved, is if the very one who was forsaken and stepped back out of the grave meets them and goes with them, for all authority has been given to him, even to the end of the age. Otherwise, it's absolute insanity. The old spiritual says Christ rose on Easter morning. Mary mother came down to see. He said, go tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. All authority has been given to him. Salvation belongs to him. Go and make disciples and go make them with the heart of Christ that says, I wish I was cut off for their sake because the one who keeps you from being cut off is with you even to the end of the age. Go do crazy stuff. Be reckless. Be Philip. In Acts chapter 8. Run along beside the chariot. If the Lord puts it on your heart, go chase the Yukon down the street. Oh, don't be ridiculous in the flesh so that you can say you've been ridiculous. Be fearless. Even to the point of being willing to put yourself on the line, Paul was. For one who knew that all things worked for good, he was in anguish of heart for his people, and he was convinced that that very anguish was working for their good as well which is exactly what it was doing in the purpose of God that was being fulfilled. And that's where we'll pick up next week. It's not enough, friends. It's not enough to tell people, I wish you had what I had. If we're going to have the heart of Christ... It has to be the heart that says, look, it's not my decision to make because salvation belongs to the Lord. But if I could be cut off so you could live, I would be. Man, I want that to be true of me. I got to tell you, I love me some me. (laughs) I don't want to be cut off. I don't. To you? And let me tell you, you can't explain this away. You can't sell this out by saying, well, yeah, I can want to be because it's a cheap want because I know he won't. Because he won't. I mean, we've just done this whole thing about the deposit guaranteeing was the blood of his son and God's not going to forfeit on that deposit. We know the security of our salvation, but that doesn't mean you get to punt doesn't mean I get to punt and just go, well then, I can say I want that because I know nothing's really at risk. No, his heart was breaking. 
was breaking for the lost. He was breaking for his brothers. He wanted them to know so much that if he could have traded his soul for theirs, he would have done it. And the reason he would have is because that is the heart that Christ had when he went to the cross. I'll go for your glory. I'll go for their salvation. I pray he sanctify us that we may look like him. Come to Christ. All authority has been given to him. He will go with you to the very end of the age. Let's pray.